valuing children as opposed to devaluing them, which is what abortion is. Um, and also, it's a great way to fight abortion by being pro-life in every way, um, being, a, being a people that, that value fostering and adoption and that help with that and that embrace that and that do that and that encourage that and that proclaim that. So, um, but it was too much. So it's become a, the four-part series become a five-part series. I'm doing fostering and adoption next week, and I'm just focusing on abortion this week. So even as you listen, would you pray for me? Would you pray for those in the congregation that know someone that's had an abortion, that have had an abortion? This is for you. Uh, this grace is for you. This truth is for you as much as for any of us. It's for all of us because we're all Americans, and that we have a law in our land that is a bad law, um, and we have been... Um, doing this horrible thing in our nation, and we're all a part of it in a sense for, for a long time, for 44 years now, um, under, under the auspices of the law, under the, the guardianship of the law in our, in our country. So pray for me. I just want to say before I start out, it's a hard topic. It's part of our series. Uh, but if you've had an abortion, I just want to say up front, you know, somebody was praying for me ahead of time, one of the covenant members, and he just said, I pray that nobody would feel judged. And I pray the same thing, and I pray that you would know that, not because what you've done is not sin and not evil, but because we have a Savior who is judged in our place. And his blood is strong enough to cover every sin. But what I want to do is I want to speak the truth, because we need to know what the law of our land is, and we need to know what abortion is so that we can fight it, and so that we can repent from it. Because if you're repenting for something you don't know about, you're not repenting. So bear with me. There's grace in Christ. Know that ahead of time. I'm going there, but I'm first just going to lay out the facts. Okay? I'm just, I'm going to lay out the facts. I want to be clear. Um, usually when you're, um, let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. I'll tell a story first, and then I'll dive in. Um, my brother-in-law, I believe it was my brother-in-law. I might have read it somewhere. This is a while ago that I heard this anecdote. But it happened. My brother loves in real estate. He visits a lot of real estate places, and he he walked into a um, he walked into a little a little shop. I believe it was here in Houston, and it was right near the railroad tracks. And he walked in, and the person at the front desk he was waiting there to have a meeting with somebody in a back office. And um, all of a sudden, this train came by, and it literally it was a smaller building, and it rattled the entire the entire building. He couldn't even hardly he was. I think he tried to speak, and he couldn't even hear his own voice just a locomotive just coming right by and shaking the place. And uh, the person at the desk just kept his or her head down and kept working, totally unfazed, totally didn't even appear to notice it. And afterwards, he said, does that bother you? And, and the person looked up and said, what? And so obviously, he just found it incredible, but that person had gotten so inured to, so used to that train roaring past that he um, didn't notice it anymore. It, um, had just learned to cope, had learned to live with it just roaring past and not, and not even paying it any mind. And um, that's really abortion in our country. It's, a, it's one of the most massive, if not the most massive problems among a host, a tangle of problems, a skein of problems that we have in our country. But it's so huge and it's so ever-present. We know that hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of children are being led to the slaughter, as our text says, every day in our country under the protection of the law. And some of us have been complicit in that, and all of us in a sense, and this is where I'll end, have been complicit in the sense that we are Americans and it is our law. And so we share that burden together. Um, 
And it's so big and so massive and so gruesome that we just can't pay constant mind to it. We learn to live with it and to ignore it, really. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone. So I want to, I wanna, um, usually when you, when you preach, you have to work to, to show what the, the problem that the text creates for the people of God. And in this case, it's not, I don't have to work at all. The problem is abortion. Let me, let me define it. Abortion is defined um, in one medical journal as a spontaneous or induced termination of a pregnancy. Now, to be clear, I'm talking not about the spontaneous or the unchosen termination of a pregnancy, um, but the, the chosen or induced termination of a pregnancy. I'm talking about induced abortion, um, where terminating the fetus is the choice of, of the mother, the father and the mother, uh, with the consent of the doctor and with the endorsement of the state and the nation. Okay? Now, the situation, um, again, in this country is that it's legal, as we all know, in the United States. Um, in some states, um, really in a sense, and I'll get into this a bit, in all states until full term, due to a 1973 Supreme Court case that we all know called Roe v. Wade, or at least we know of it. Um, this provision concentrates, it's a 60-page case, I would encourage you to read it. Um, it's about 30 pages of meat, and then the other 30 pages you can kind of skim past. Um, but it provi- the provision concentrates on the health of the mother. That's, that's the pivot. That's the soft underbelly. That's the provision of the case. The exact provision is found in section 11, subsection 1C of the court's opinion in Roe v. Wade, and it reads, it reads thusly, for the stage subsequent to viability, the state in promoting its interest in the potentiality of human life may, if it chooses, regulate and even proscribe abortion, except where it is necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. So it's that last phrase, health, that one person has described as uh, an open barn door for abortion on demand. Because um, So it, the abortion is the induced termination of a fetus, and it's legal up, up till birth with certain, with certain uh, provisions, and I'll go into those in a second. Um, but... Uh, the open bond door is the health of the mother because the doctor and the mother can base, the, if the doctor says, look, it's an emotional burden, it's going to injure your health psychologically to keep this child, then abortion is legal, okay? Now, um, some states go even farther, 26 in all, when I did this research a few years ago, okay, so that's a caveat, allow what's commonly called partial birth abortion. It's what it sounds like, and I'm not, I decided not to show pictures because that's not appropriate here, um, I watched them, be, some of them, because I felt that I wanted to be as burdened as possible and to know as much as I could to give you guys a sermon on what is legal in our country and what we're doing, okay, so that we can pray for it, fight it, embrace those who've had them, um, so on and so forth, um, adopt, um, foster. Partial birth abortion, I'm, I'm not even going to get into the grisly details, and they are grisly, but it's what it sounds like. Essentially, the baby, baby is partially born, but not fully and is then destroyed before the baby fully comes out. So that's a nine-month-old. Um, and 26 states, as of the time of my research, um, said, yeah, that's legal. Um, now, there was a decision in 2007 called Gonzalez versus Carhartt that outlaws, it's a federal decision, so it affects every state, and it outlaws a particular method of partial birth abortion, commonly referred to as either IDX or DNX. It's called dilation and extraction. And basically, it just outlaws, again, through, a fuzzy, through fuzzy language, through a barn door, it just outlaws one method, essentially, of partial birth abortion, so that still the baby can be dismembered, 
in the womb and then pulled out other things, crushed skull, burned. The most common thing to get around this case in 2007 is to uh, get a solution of potassium chloride or dioxygen, excuse me, diogoxin, digoxin, let me get that right. It's injected directly into the fetal heart. Again, this is a full, this is a nine-month-old ready to be born, um, but still in the womb. Into the fetal heart using ultrasound to guide the needle. Doesn't always work, creates lots of problems, horrific. So um, again, about half of the states, this is legal. Other states, 20 plus, have, have, uh, have laws to prevent partial birth abortion, but they're often contested in federal court and dismissed. So that's the situation in our country. It sounds inflammatory. I'm just giving you the facts. But be inflamed. That's part of my responsibility is to give you facts, and I pray that they outrage you so we can act appropriately as, as citizens and as Christians. Um, one one um, news reporter commenting on this said, what's legal is not always right. It's a simple point. Think of Nazi Germany. What's legal doesn't, isn't necessarily right. What's legal is not always right. Think of the laws in the South in the 18th and 19th centuries regarding black African slavery. What's legal is not always right. Um, but what is right should need no law. Okay? Um, if the embryo is a tissue or a blob, or I'm going to use some language later, and I'll pull it, here, pull it in here now, or a guppy-like thing and not a human, then abortion is not a moral problem, period. Okay? So all that stuff I just read to you, not a problem if we're looking at a blob. But if it's not a tissue and it's a person inside of another person, we have a huge problem, a huge problem and a very evil law. So let me give you some embryo facts, okay? The sperm from the man fertilizes the egg of the woman and travels down the fallopian tube and sometimes implants in the uterus, okay? It's a little home for nine months. At the moment of, um, of fertilization, that sperm and egg become a single-celled zygote, um, and the male sperm and the female egg each contain 23 chromosomes, okay? Upon fertilization, that single cell, one cell, contains 46 chromosomes, which is all that you or I have. That's all that we have. It has all of its DNA coding, and get this, it's different. It's a third coding. It's not just a combination of the coding of mom and dad. It's a unique coding, which means we have a, a particular unique individual that is not just a combination of mom and dad. It's something extra. It's something more. And it has everything necessary for life, and that will not change until the day of its death, whether it's in the womb one month outside of the womb, 100 years old. That will not change. Just like an acorn has all the coding in it to become an oak tree. Looks a lot different, looks a lot different, but it's no different information-wise, okay? Again, all that's needed for a human mature adult is in that single cell, everything. Francis Crick, the Nobel laureate and biophysicist who is credited for co-discovering the DNA double helix, Crick and Watson, uh, is quoted as having estimated that, quote, the amount of information contained in the chromosomes of a single of that single fertilized human egg is equivalent to about a thousand printed volumes of books, each as large as a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I got that from Robert Bork, Slouching Towards Gomorrah, great book. Um, embryologists, now I'm using all my language carefully. We got some lawyers in the in the crowd, and this is a serious subject, and I always try to do that anyway. Okay, but embryologists agree. Embryologists, not medical textbooks necessarily. Uh, that's not necessarily what they teach you in med school. In fact, it's not typically. 
embryologists agree in biological terms, life begins at fertilization. Medical fact. Okay? Embryological fact, biologically. 18 to 25 days after conception, the baby's heart is beating. At eight weeks, brain waves can be detected. And when someone's brain waves are gone, that's how we determine if they're dead. Not even their heart. The heart can be re revived. Brain waves. Eight weeks, brain waves detected. Fingerprints have formed. By the ninth and tenth weeks, the thyroid and adrenal glands are functioning, and the thing can squint, swallow, and move the tongue. By the twelfth and thirteenth weeks, the thing can suck its thumb and recoil from pain if pricked with a needle. By the fourth month, the thing is eight to ten inches in height, tiny. Uh, all these changes occur before the fifth month, get this, before the fifth month when the mother is usually first able to detect movement within the womb. Now I ask you, is this thing a blob of tissue or is it a human? What do the facts say? Uh, if you can show the first photo there, this is a photo either of 12 or 20 weeks um, of a baby sucking its thumb. I love this photo because it's so clearly, to me, a human. It's so clearly a baby. It's uh, so clearly like the th three babies I've held in my arms of my own, and, it's, and it reminds me of my middle daughter, Avery, who sucks her thumb all the time, especially when she's asleep, and I make sure and go in and kiss the kids. Seth's harder. He's up on the top. I kiss him less. I feel a little guilty about that, but I always try to give him a little pat. But I kiss Avery on the cheek almost every night, way after she's gone to bed, when I'm going to bed, and she's always got that, you know, that thumb in the mouth, and it just reminds me of her, and it breaks my heart. To, it, it fills my heart with joy to see that, but to think of that being touched in any way negatively inside of a, a safe haven of a mother's womb is, makes me furious. Um, I will quote the editors of the journal, uh, what the editors of the Journal of the California Medicine noted back in 1970, 38 years ago, um, when I wrote this in seminary, much, much longer ago now, and far behind um, where we are now in our medical understanding of this thing, okay? They noted, quote, I quote this magazine, California Medicine. They, they noted, quote, the curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, that human life begins at conception and is continuous whether intra or extra uterine until death. That's 113-3, uh, September 1970, California Medicine, if you want to look it up. Um, if you can show the second photo... Uh, this is the, the photo that most of us have seen probably, and if you're older, you've almost certainly seen this. It was a famous photo um, on the cover of Time magazine in, guess the year, 1965, almost a decade before Roe v. Wade. This is a baby at 18 weeks. This is a baby at 18 weeks. Um, so... It, almost eight years before this court case, this is what everybody knew was inside of this mom um, just after the first trimester. Doesn't look like a blob to me. It's a miracle. A surprising thing um, is that abortion was known not just eight years before Roe v. Wade, but thousands of years ago. It was known to be uh, a heinous thing. Hippocrates, the Grecian doctor, after which we get the Hippocratic Oath, which all doctors in the United States take. I've been at a white coat ceremony. When they get their white coats, I've seen them take this oath. Um, part of the oath states this, quote, I will give no, it was in Greek, I'm translating, okay. I'm not translating, it's a translation. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked. This is what the Hippocratic Oath has doctors say. Nor suggest any, any such counsel, and in like manner I will not give to a woman a pessary to produce abortion. Hippocrates knew abortion to be homicide, uh, and we do too, and we have since before Roe v. Wade. Um, John Piper gives some reasons that we know 
Number one, states treat the killing of an unborn as a homicide. Okay, we know what we are doing because 27 states, as of the time I did this research, it might be more now, treat the killing of an unborn child as a form of homicide. They have fetal homicide laws. Um, okay, now he goes on to say, he said, as I read about this in the newspaper, a sentence leapt off the page at me. Quote, the law makes it murder to kill an, abo- um, an embryo or a fetus intentionally, get this, comma, except for cases of abortion. In other words, if the mom doesn't choose for her, the baby inside of her, the thing inside of her womb, the embryo, the baby inside of her womb to be killed and it's killed, then it's murder. If she chooses for it to be killed, then it's sanctioned by law and protected. Um, The act is protected. The baby, of course, is not. Number two, the inconsistency, Piper says, of fetal surgery and abortion. We know what we're doing because of the inconsistency of the fact that we do, we go to great lengths to perform now intrauterine surgery on these wonderful creatures inside the womb, um, and yet we can also abort them in the next room over. Okay, so Dr. Steve Calvin, in a letter some years ago to the Arizona Daily Star, said, there is inescapable schizophrenia in aborting a perfectly normal 22-week fetus while at the same hospital performing intrauterine surgery on its cousin. Incredible schizophrenia in our system. Size is irrelevant, number three, in determining personhood. The five-foot-eight brother holding his 23-inch sister, he's worth more than she is because she's smaller. Of course not. That's silly. Size does not determine personhood. Dwarves are not less valuable than fully grown humans, nor are giants more valuable than you. Any giants in the room? Andrew Tinsley, you're close. All right. (laughs) Size is irrelevant in determining personhood. We all know it if we think about it for five seconds. Um, Number four, developed reasoning powers are irrelevant for determining personhood. We know what we're doing because uh, this, you know, a one-year-old infant doesn't have the developed reasoning powers that you or I do, hopefully. Hopefully you progress some. Um, uh, somebody who's mentally handicapped is not less worthwhile. But, the, but abortion laws, laws that sanction abortion are, are coming after mentally handicapped people and people that lose their faculties in the elderly and the infirm because that's the same reasoning and it's just a matter of time. And we've already seen it with like, Terry Schiavo and other other cases in this country. Five, location or environment are irrelevant for determining personhood. Scott Klusendorf asks, quote, how does a simple journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform, transform the essential nature of a fetus from a non-person to a person? It doesn't. That's the answer. Number six, dependency on another is irrelevant for determining personhood, okay? We know what we're doing because just because something's really dependent on other things, it's not viable on its own, doesn't mean that it's less of a person. You know, the baby being held in the back, we've got other babies in here. If we just left it here, it would die. In fact, it's the opposite. The more in need something is of care, the more value and and care we place on it and give to it, not less. We have more responsibility to protect the vulnerable, and I'm going to head that direction in a bit, not less. It's the opposite. Number seven, the genetic makeup of humans is unique. We know what we're doing because we know that the genetic makeup of a human is different from all other creatures from the moment of conception, like I've just told you, factually. I haven't even really argued it. I've just told you the facts, okay? Decide for yourself. The human code is complete and unique from the start. We know what we're doing, says Piper. Eight, all the organs are present in eight weeks of gestation. 
We know what we're doing because we know that eight weeks of gestation, all the organs are present. Brain's functioning, heart's pumping, liver's making blood cells, kidneys cleaning the fluids. The finger has a print. Yet almost all, listen to this, abortion happens after this date. And ninthly, we've seen the ultrasounds and photographs. We know what we're doing. Uh, it's a window into the womb, for example, at eight weeks, sucking its thumb, as I showed you, recoiling from pricking, whether through abortion or through intrauterine surgery, responding to sound. Um, we have the photographs. If you could show the third photograph, friends. Um, this is a 12-week fetus in a man's hand. 12 weeks, legal to abort in all 50 states, right here. If a picture... If there's ever a case where a picture says a thousand words, this is it. First trimester. Conclusion, it's a person, people. Right? Dr. Megan Best, the question now is, does the human have the right to be protected, have a right to life? If there is no doubt as to the life of this human, how is its wanton destruction, this is a correlated question, how is its wanton destruction justified? Case closed, right? It's a person. Yay, the, the law's going to be overturned. We're all going to change our minds. No. Again, we've known for decades, we've known for millennia that this is a person, not a blob or a tissue. Discovering this as I did my research left me stunned. I thought the issue was, is this a person? If it is, case closed. There's plenty of evidence everywhere, photographic and otherwise, to show that this is a person, okay? Um, that's not the issue, though. The case is not closed, unfortunately. Um, there's a particularly candid excerpt here um, from a July 1977 issue of The New Republic, it's written from the pro-abortion standpoint. It says this, The right to life is argument simple. A fetus is a human life, and the government should not sanction the taking of human life except in direct circumstances, such as when another life is threatened. None of the common pro-abortion arguments deal with this issue head-on. Would a woman's right to control her own body permit her to kill another adult person who has committed no offense against her? Would we sanction the murder of a children who are unwanted and unloved just as we sanction the destruction of fetuses because they might turn out that way? Would it evoke much sympathy for a legalized terror bombing movement to be told that terrorists often injure themselves with amateurish homemade bombs? And then quoting um, my professor, Dr. Harold Brown, despite this very clear acknowledgement of what goes on in abortion, the New Republic editorial favors abortion. It continues, this editorial continues, those who believe a woman should be free to have an abortion must face the consequences of their beliefs. Metaphysical arguments about the beginning of life are fruitless, but there clearly is no logical or moral distinction between a fetus and a young baby. Free availability of abortion cannot be reasonably distinguished from euthanasia. Here's the line. Nevertheless, we are for it. It's too facile to say that human life is always sacred, they say. Obviously, it's not. And the social cost of preserving against the mother's will, the lives of fetuses who are not yet self-conscious is simply too great. Is it okay to destroy this human life? If, if it's a life in the mother's womb and the mother so chooses, then the answer in our country is yes. The fact is, it's not really about uh, life anymore. Um, it's about whether the life, the unborn, vulnerable, valuable life inside of a mother, um, whether its rights trump uh, to, to live trump the rights of a woman to do what she wants to, to trump the rights of a woman to terminate the life of this child inside of her. And in the United States for 44 years now, um, to the tune of 50 plus million children, we decided yes, 
and the rights of the mother to choose to terminate this human being, this life, trump uh, the rights of this vulnerable um, little child. Um, and to do so with metal tongs, with sharp surgical steel, with saline solution, with a vacuum that's uh, 29 times more powerful than your average living room cleaner. This is the way it happens. And then they're wrapped up in sheets and they're tossed in the, in the trash. And I've seen some of it this weekend. It's grisly and it's horrific. And it's what we're doing hundreds of times a day in this country. Um, Dr. Best, Megan Best, called it freedom from an unwanted pregnancy. And that's right. Um, she goes on to say that people make up laws so they can do what they want. And let me say, friends, I could have started with that. Right? I wanted you to know, here's the law. A lot of you know all this stuff. Here, here are the facts about embryos. Um, here's some of the literature, here's some photos, but the fact is, we do this because we do, we want to do what we want to do. And we will go to, this shows any links, and history shows us too in other ways, which I'll get to, to do it. Um, it reminds me of a comment by British writer Aldous Huxley in his, in his book, Ends and Means. He said, <clears throat> I'm going to skip around, he said, basically, look, he said, look, I had motives for wanting the world to have a meaning, for, excuse me, for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Get this, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Get this, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And in brief, he's saying this, I became an atheist so I could sleep with my girlfriend. Now that is an honesty that is to be commended, my friends. And it's dead on. The Apostle Paul says the same thing this way in Romans 1. He says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I've just given you the truth, the facts. I haven't really argued much at all. The facts argue for themselves. We all know them. We all know what the truth is. But we push it down. That Greek word suppress, I think it's used four times in Romans 1, and it means we push it down, we suffocate it, we drown it. It's like a human trying to come up for breath, and we want to murder that human, and we push that thing down by the shoulders and hold it under. And it keeps bobbing up this thing, this truth, and we shove it down because we want to do what we want to do. And we want to live in our sin. And don't you tell me, God, how to live. And that's, no, that's not just those who have thought about an abortion, had an abortion, doctors who perform them, who make tons of money off of them. That's all of us. Paul says, that's all of us. Because in chapter 2, he says, are you pointing the finger? Don't you judge. Don't you judge. Because if you judge, you will be judged. Because you who judge are doing the same things. We're all guilty under God's righteous demands. History, like I said, is littered with instances of this sort of mentality, and it's always at great cost to the most vulnerable in society. The Nazis did this with the Jews, uh, with the elderly, with the mentally and the physically handicapped. They called murder extermination, death camps. Con they called concentration camps. You notice, notice the euphemisms there? And the murder of the infirm, the retarded, the elderly, and those deemed no longer useful to the state, no longer useful to the state, getting in the way of our freedoms, of our rights, of our convenience, they called mercy killing. A bit farther back in our country, uh, that we had lots of advocates of slavery, they turned, they turned their argument at one point from arguing that slavery was a necessary evil to actually trumpeting its virtues, okay? Um, and Robert George, I don't have time, but Robert P. George of Princeton 
a Roman Catholic scholar, excellent scholar, writes a book called The Clash of Orthodoxies where he talks about all this really helpfully. But we have similar language in the, in the pro-choice, pro-choice, that sounds great, in the pro-abortion movement. Um, a woman's right to choose, that sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm for a woman's right to choose. Reproductive health, okay? As for the Nazis, they, they name-called as well. Um, uh, they call Jews swine. It dehumanizes them. It's very effective. If you're just killing a pig, it's no problem. Um, dewy tissue. Fetuses have been called dewy tissue, guppy-like. These are all gotten from sources that, I've, that I can give you later. A sexually transmitted condition or, worst of all, a venereal disease. Babies in the womb have been called all these things, okay? It's, it dehumanizes. It's effective. You notice the trend? Um, Martin Luther King had something to say about this kind of name-calling. And he said it from his jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, there were those inside the church, even who denounced his civil obedience as extremism and called for a more moderate approach to the evil of racism and the unjust laws that promoted it. He writes, he writes this, quote, But though I was initially disappointed at being characterized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction for the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos, the Old Testament prophet, an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther the reformer an extremist? Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail till the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question isn't whether we'll be extremists, Martin Luther says, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? I want to give just a few reasons as to why abortion is bad. I'm going to have to fly through them. It's bad policy, just as the Nazi Holocaust and American slavery was bad policy. In the same ways, it's bad policy. It's bad logic. Um, for a woman to have rights, and a woman should have equal rights to a man um, in this country, uh, she has to, the only solid foundation she can go to, and we're going to, so we're going to go here real quickly, is, is to the fact that we are made by a creator in his image. We have special worth apart from cauliflower or monkeys or the worm outside or that bark on the playground or stars. We're not just stardust, okay? We are made by God in his image, um, and he finds us precious, and he's distinguished us from all other creatures. When you, when you push that away, then the rights of women go bye-bye, okay? Um, the rights of women go bye-bye. And uh, you have to push that away. You have to push that away to crush the rights of the unborn. Okay, but when you do that, you endanger your very self. So you have no ground to stand on. So it's bad logic. It's bad law. I wish I had time to go through how terrible this law is. Again, look it up. It's 60 pages long, but only about 30 um, of real reading. Um, Justice Rehnquist dissenting, uh, gives his dissenting opinion. It's about five pages long, and he just devastates Blackman's argument. He plows the ground with the guy as well he should. White has another dissenting opinion that's even shorter, and it's filled with an admixture of disgust and disbelief. Um, and actually, letters were written from courts and judges all over the world after Roe v. Wade to say what terrible, just what terrible case, what terrible case law it was. 
um, how it, it completely um, ignored uh, precedent and it's just bad logic and bad language all around. Um, it's bad for minorities. Um, the pro-choice push is supposed to be a platform that promotes the health of welfare of women, especially minority and poor women. Um, yet, abortion kills off a greater percentage of African Americans than any other race in America. Hispanics are a close second. In 2003, white women had 165 abortions per thousand births. Hispanics had 228 per thousand. African American women had 491 abortions per thousand. I wouldn't be surprised if the KKK were a huge fan of abortion because it literally kills almost, it did at this time, one out of two in 2003. One out of two black Americans. Um, freedom for minorities? No, not at all. It's more like, more like titanic oppression. It's bad for women. Women can face hemorrhage that requires transfusion, perforation of the uterus, cardiac arrest, and endotoxic shock, major unintended surgery, infection resulting in hospitalization, convulsions, undiagnosed ectopic tubal pregnancy, cervical laceration, uterine rupture, and death. Uh, women who abort are more likely to experience ectopic pregnancies, infertility, hysterectomies, stillbirths, miscarriages, and premature births than women who have not had abortions. The, the, it goes on and on. This is all from medical journals, okay? Um, my quick glance rendered account of 18 medical journals with titles ranging from outcome of delivery, subsequent to induced vacuum aspiration, abortion, and Paris women, to, quote, delayed reproductive complications after induced abortion to, quote, oral contraceptive use and early abortion as risk factors for breast cancer in young women. The fact is, the thing that has promised freedom and happiness for women has helped enslave them. It's bad for women. It's bad for kids. Um, as my former professor, Harold Brown, notes in his book, Death Before Birth, parents perhaps unconsciously may reason, I didn't have to kill uh, this child, I could have killed him before he was born, so I may knock him around a little now that he's born. Isn't that my perfect right? There's more. Uh, there were similar um, conclusions made by the West German Federal Constitutional Court in 1975 with similar, similar logic. Um, it's an ironic tragedy, this one, because in so many ways, um, child abuse was one of the arguments that was used to, um, to embrace and to favor abortion. Let's get rid of this child so that the parent can actually love the next one because um, the parent won't love this one very well, but it turns out that it actually, the facts say that it actually makes, uh, it increases child abuse um, among those who have had abortions. Um, okay, so it's bad for all these groups and people, and I've skipped some. Who's it good for? It's good for doctors. Who wins with abortion? Doctors do. Um, Dr. Brown quotes Presbyterian physician and anti-abortion activist William Miller, saying that aside from striking oil on your property, the fastest way to make money is to set up an abortion clinic. Unless performing a cesarean section, a C-section, or inducing labor, an ordinary obstetrician um, has to do, or gets to do, um, prenatal and postnatal care. It takes up a lot of time and money. You can't just schedule when, someone, when a woman goes into labor. You have to wait. Um, but that's not true with abortions. Abortions often have call uh, centers next to them. The one that I went and stood out in front of and prayed for and talked to any woman that wanted to in, Char in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I went to seminary, did, had a call center next to it, it's all hidden behind bushes, everything is. Uh, why is it hidden if it's, if it's not a problem, you know? And uh, they have call centers next to them because you can just schedule. Doctors know that this, the third trimester baby to be aborted is going to take longer than the first trimester. Um, and so they know how long these things are going to take. It's a science. And uh, they schedule them, they slot them in, and they have a full 40-hour week, and they're making money back to back to back to back. It is extremely lucrative. Typically, uh, the doctor pockets about 90% of the, uh, the profits, 10% go to the clinic owner, unless it's the doctor, in which those go uh, to the doctor as well. And then, of course, the staff is paid too. 
So closing in and transitioning, why should we care? There are obvious reasons, I hope. I hope everyone cares now just for that information. And I, you probably did before you came in here. I'm, I'm preaching to choir in a lot of ways. But this is my topic this morning, so I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the facts, okay? Why should we care? Two words, creation and incarnation. Dr. Best, again, Megan Best, said that abortion is, quote, an extension of the idea that the species Homo sapien deserves no special treatment. And that's right. There's no solid ground for not, really, for not committing an abortion and not for, having, for not having human rights, women's rights, rights for minorities, rights for the vulnerable, unless we believe that God created us different, special, breathed his breath into us and created us in his image. And that's found in Genesis 126, where he makes all things except for man and woman. And then he says, let us make man, Genesis 126, in our image. And in the image of God, he created him and her, male and female, equal worth and dignity. It's unique among ancient Near Eastern texts. I've never seen anything like it. And that roots and grounds our worth. And if we get rid of that, then we're all in trouble. And that's what we've done to allow ourselves to think that abortion's okay. Um, Paul in Acts 17.28 says, we are indeed his offspring. The Old Testament absolutely outlaws it in every single way. For those that um, offered their children to Moloch, uh, Molech, the death penalty uh, was, was prescribed in Leviticus 18 and 20. Um, and, and God's people were warned not to imitate their neighbors who committed infanticide through child sacrifice. Um, Zechariah 2.8, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. When we poke, uh, we poke God in the eye when we touch his image inside the womb and when we destroy his image inside the womb. It's like we're poking God. He says, in my, you're poking me in my pupil. That's what the word apple in the Hebrew means. Can you imagine? We're poking the most powerful, the all-powerful, uncreated being, all just, all perfect in the eye when we do this. And he's just. Um, Matthew 1.18 links conception to birth. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with guppy, with tissue. No, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. First trimester. Um, the, uh, Isaiah 46 talks about a relationship with God in the womb. God says, I carried you, Israel, uh, before birth, when you were still in the womb. I carried you, that tender language of a mother and her child. Psalm 139, 14 through 16. My frame was not hidden from you, David says, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in my mother's womb, in the depths of the earth. It's a metaphor for the mother's womb. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. The Old Testament always forbids abortion. In the New Testament, John the Baptist leaps for joy inside of his mother's womb. When, his, when, when Jesus comes inside of Mary's womb into the room, John the Baptist senses the presence of his maker and leaps for joy. Right there, we have this amazing picture of what the Bible says about the value and the personhood of little people inside the womb. Contrast these injunctions with the barbarism of, of Roman culture. Cicero records that according to the 12 tables of Roman law, Deformed infants shall be killed, De Legibus 3.8. Plutarch, uh, who was around the same time, he spoke of those who, uh, he said, offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without tear or moan. That's Moralia uh, 2.171d. Um, in the Roman world, not only infanticide, but exposure was very common. 
uh, just leaving an unwanted child out, exposing a child and just, and just walking on your own way. And Christians would find these children, and they would take them in, they would adopt them. And wherever, actually wherever uh, churches went up, wherever Christians were and formed congregations, um, it was common practice for elders in the ancient church to adopt. It wasn't, it wasn't just an exception, it was normalized, it was the rule that actually we value human life, and so exposure disappeared, orphans disappeared, things started to change over the course of three or four hundred years. Um, so the church and God's view of the preciousness of, of unborn life and of early life made all the difference in the Roman world, um, and it should for us in the church today as well. So that's creation, incarnation. Jesus was not born an adult. Jesus... Uh, didn't just come as a one-year-old, ba- a one-day-old baby. He came as an embryo. The God of the universe came as an embryo. If that doesn't validate life inside the womb, I don't know what does. Even more than creation, incarnation validates life, the preciousness of life inside the womb. He was born poor. He was born to an unwed mother. Joseph could have easily pushed for an abortion. Um, and if he had, he would have endangered our salvation, and his. But instead of that, he embraced what was happening. This son of God who was born of Mary, born of a woman to represent us all, and he became the child's adopted father. And we'll probably return to that next week. And he raised the child, loved the child, and taught the child what the child knew. Um, And as he was doing that, maybe little did he know, he was raising his own savior and ours. Um, You can change the world by being an advocate for life in every way. Literally, Joseph did. Um, We want to be a culture of life here at Sojourn. We want to be pro-life in every way, not just saying no to abortion, but yes to life in all sorts of ways, as I've said, to adoption and fostering, to supporting those who do, even if that's not our call, to fighting human trafficking, as Rob talked about last week. We've got a partner there. We're hoping to partner fairly soon with the source who's just down the street and um, does the opposite of Planned Parenthood, okay? And we, uh, in fighting poverty and, and racism, those are the two top, the next two topics after uh, adoption and fostering for our sermons, okay? Um, in, in saying yes to unwed mothers and saying yes to and welcoming those who have had abortions, who are thinking about them, who need, who need to keep the job but don't know where to go, and set, being, a, in being a family that says, come to us, we'll take care of you, we'll love you, we'll provide for you, you're our family, you're in our family now. We don't judge you because there's one who's been judged in your place. His name is Jesus. And really, we're all in your place. We're all sinners in our own merit. If we stand in our own merit, we're all sinners condemned by a just and a righteous God. But Jesus, but Jesus, his blood speaks a a better word um, than the blood of Abel. If you have had an abortion, I want to say this word to you in particular. This is one thing that I really want to focus on that the incarnation does for us. If you carry shame over an abortion, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. It gives a, a, a roll call of all the amazing blessings that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And it says, man, if you can't come in your own merit, God is terrifying. But what? We have been brought into the heavenly place. We have been given the blessings of the children of God. Okay? We have come, it says, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel is the first murder in the Bible. Cain murdered his brother Abel because of our sin nature, because we've been separated from God. Sin takes over, and he murdered his brother. And then he said to God, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not my responsibility. Egregious, hardcore murder. And that blood cries out from the ground for, for justice. And God can't let that kind of thing go. But what the author of Hebrews tells us is that, and we're all, we all stand guilty in a sense under that same thing. If we hate in our heart, we've murdered. If we lust after a woman, we've committed adultery. We are all sinners in God's eyes. And there's a sense in which the blood of Abel cries out against us. It says you're guilty. But this hopeful, amazing, and true word says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, speaks a covering word. He went to the cross and took the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. And it covers every single sin that any of us can commit. There is no sin that can keep you from the love of God because Jesus was judged in your place. It speaks a better word. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've had an abortion. One of the reasons I wanted to unpack that is because we can't repent of something that we don't know what we did. And you know what? There, we need to have a sense of solidarity about this sin because, as I said, we're, even if we're not Americans, we're in America now, and this is an American law. In Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 1, a godly and righteous and faithful man, he cries out for the sins of his country, and he says, we have sinned against you. He identifies with his people. Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 does the same thing. Oh, God, we have sinned against you. Daniel was a righteous man. He was a righteous man, but he said he identified with his people. And that's a picture of Jesus. It's just a shadow of the reality that was to come, and that's Jesus. Jesus comes, and it is said of him in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin was made to, be, to become sin, that we might become, we who look to him, who died in our place, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He became our sin, and we become his perfect righteousness. He wipes our sin away through the shedding of his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's for us. That's for you, no matter what you've done. He's the only way to be right with God because God is just and God is merciful, and the cross shows us both those things. I started with the train, and I'm going to finish with the train. Um, and the not, we've all probably heard the accounts of um, the trains going by. You can almost hear the horrific rumbling in your, in, your, in your ears. The trains going by packed with mainly Jews, but others that were unwanted in Nazi society. And I'm reading a book right now called The German War by an Oxford scholar at Maudlin College. And um, he really, he looks at what the average, how the average German just, how the average German was able to live for six years or longer under this regime with some, just to get by with something of a conscience and to keep living and to keep fighting for Hitler um, or just to keep running the shop or whatever it was to be part of this system and a lot of it was just they ignored it and so you have accounts of churches that would be having Sunday worship Lutheran German churches and they would sing louder as they heard the trains go by because there was a very real sense in which you know we're not sure we, we, we think something terrible is happening but we just kind of want to turn a blind eye because I'm pretty sure what that train's filled with and I just don't want to know I just, I can't live with that knowledge because then I'd have to do something. And what does our text say? This is why I labored to just put all this out in the open because it's, it's the facts. It's what's happening and we need to know. We can no longer say, I don't know because God knows what we know and what we ought to know and we will be held accountable for that one day. We will be held accountable for that one day. And so what does it say? 
what does it say? That last, that last line in our text, excuse me, that I can't find. Well, anyway, it's on the screen. Let me read it on the screen. That last line in our text, will he not repay man according to his work? Because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we can get to work. We can, as God has said, do justice. And we want to be a people that do that through the way that we pray, through the way that we love those that have committed some of these sins, through the way that we educate ourselves, through the way that we speak truth and offer mercy in Jesus Christ, the way that we identify, through the way that we vote. Please don't ever vote for a candidate that I'm never, I'm never going to politicize this pulpit. I abhor that. This is beyond politics. The Nazi Holocaust was beyond politics. Slavery was beyond politics. It wasn't a Democrat-Republican issue. This is murder. This is murder. And I want to do everything I can to fight it. I want you to be with me. Don't ever vote for a pro-choice, pro-abortion candidate. And if there's not a candidate that's pro-life, that's acceptable in all the pro-life ways, vote for a third candidate. Write somebody in. Write yourself in. But please, don't vote for a pro-abortion candidate. Um, Call your congressman, because on October 3rd, on Tuesday, they're going to be having a 20-week, apparently, it's scheduled, things could change, a, 20, a vote on banning federally 20-week abortion, 20-week and beyond. Let your call, your reps and senators, and let them know what you think and how they ought to be representing you, okay? Let's pray.